Let us pray. Dear Lord, you have taught us to give of the first fruits. We do so now out of obedience, out of trust in your promise of the blessings you will give us, but most of all out of gratitude through the knowledge that all we have is from thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we cut the second hymn, Ferris Lord Jesus, I noticed that that last stanza said optional, and some exercised the option, and some <laughs> did not. Uh, the lesson today is a lesson that deals with one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. And yet it is a passage that we can never look at without gaining some insights into ourselves and some insights into the heart of God and also some applications that can be applied to our own life's situation. When I think of the parable of the prodigal son, and I think of the great artists of history, people who are teachers of art tell us that Rembrandt's greatest painting is the return of the prodigal, which is located in the Hermitage Museum in Leningrad in Russia. Dostoevsky, who is also a, uh, who is a Russian writer, uh, and whose uh, film, by the way, was yesterday, they had the, uh, one of his films on TV that I had hoped to copy and my thing didn't work, uh, the VCR. But uh, Dostoevsky was converted through uh, reading the parable of the prodigal son. And he made it uh, something which he wove into all of his great stories. He was quite an evangelical Christian. And many regard him as the greatest novelist who ever lived. Now I say this because when you find something that touches the minds and hearts of super geniuses like Dostoevsky and Rembrandt and also can touch the heart of a person in a rescue mission, you find a work that uh, is of God in such a unique way that it speaks to us uh, deeply and tenderly. Now take the bulletin and look at the little poem that Ruth Graham has written, The Prodigal's Parents. And then think about this when I read the story. They felt good eyes upon them and shrank within, undone. Good parents had good children, and they a wandering one. The good folk never meant to act smug or condemn, but having prodigals just wasn't done with them. Remind them gently, Lord, how you have trouble with your children, too. This poem speaks to me uniquely. Last night I had a long-distance telephone call from Texas from my oldest brother, who is the clerk of the session in his church one of the most exemplary Christian men I have ever known. 
a school teacher for 40 years in the same high school, professor of physics. His wife, 42 years in the college where she worked, the director of the Learning Center, a graduate of Vanderbilt. They had one son. He was just sentenced to 40 years in prison. He had never received a, even a, I think maybe a, a traffic ticket in all of his life up until this episode with cocaine and then the crime that followed. Christian parents reading the Bible in their home, praying with and for their child. And yet this can happen, and it hurts. Think about the poem that Ruth wrote. They felt good eyes upon them and shrank within undone. Good parents had good children and they a wandering one. Think how he feels today in his church. The good folk never meant to act smug or condemn, but having prodigals just wasn't done with them. Remind them gently, Lord, how you have trouble with your children too. In the epistle of James, we have been studying on Wednesday nights the trouble that the tongue can cause. And James lumps right into the sins of adultery and fornication and drunkenness and stealing, the sin of gossip, the sin of malicious slander, and the sin that breaks up fellowship in the church or in families. And we studied about that in the prayer meeting. Well, the Lord Jesus was not exempt from tongues that were sharp. There was once an inference that he might be an illegitimate child. There were other times when he was accused of performing his miracles because he was in league with the devil. And on the occasion that presents this great lesson, which we can look at only briefly today, Jesus was a friend of renegades and sinners, and not only a friend to them, in such a way that they came and listened to them, but he was so close to them that this aroused the anger of the Pharisees who were tremendously religious people and the scribes who were very learned in all the things concerning the law so that they spoke against Jesus saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. In the Oriental's mind eating with someone is more than having a hamburger at McDonald's. I have a cardiac arrest thinking about that. But it, it, uh, it is a bonding that takes place. When you break bread with someone, you establish a relationship with them. They are in the strength of your home, and you eat a meal. And Jesus ate with these people. And so the scribes and the Pharisees said, this man receives them. He, he receives them and eats with them. And they criticized Jesus. And this laid the occasion for a trilogy of parables that Luke links together. 
The first story that he tell in response to that criticism, he speaks to them. And he says, what man who has a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one until he has found it. Notice the ratio, one hundred sheep. Only one of them is gone astray, but that one is the object of the shepherd's care. And the shepherd goes after that one until he finds it, and when he finds it, he lays it upon his shoulders. And for those of you who do not come from an agrarian background, laying a sheep upon your shoulders is a very nice way of doing a very dirty thing. I have picked up sheep. They are tearing at you. They stink. They are not pleasant to lay upon your shoulders and care back. And yet Jesus says that the good shepherd not only finds this sheep who may be sick and has wandered away, maybe he's under drugs if he's a modern day sheep, on crack or rock or cocaine, and finds him and brings him back kicking and screaming and puts him on his shoulders. And the shepherd, the key word is rejoicing, joy. He brings him back rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbors together. He's not ashamed of that sheep. He's proud of him. And he says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Something is lost when it's not where it should be. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, why should they spend millions of dollars in Amsterdam to have a conference on evangelism? What's the thing closest to the heart of God? It's the sinner the furthest away from him, the one whom he can win and draw back to himself. And the church has become terribly mixed up in its priorities when it forsakes evangelism to do every other thing, no matter how good it may seem on the surface. We need to do the good things, but the primary thing, go and get that which is lost, disciple it. These young men who made their declaration of faith in Christ today, made that faith in Christ because someone sowed seeds of Christian faith in China years ago. And it was hard for them and for their families to practice or do anything effective about their faith for a long time. But it blossomed out greatly here. And it's come into fruition. Their distinguished aunt, who is at Harvard University and a great scientist and professor there, I have spoken with her on the telephone and I remember introducing myself because we had a problem to talk about and I said I am from Montreat, North Carolina. Do you know about Montreat? And her immediate response was, oh yes, I, know, I knew Dr. Bell, Dr. Nelson Bell, a very good Christian. There must be good people there. I know you will help with the problem that we have. Uh, this was the immediate response. Well, there is rejoicing. And our job is to go and to win the lost, and that's why Jesus was being criticized. 
I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. And then he goes to a woman who has ten silver coins and loses one of them. The coins are usually thought of as a dowry, uh, something like a, a wedding ring. And one coin is lost. And the woman uh, searches everywhere to find the coin. Notice that God is active, like the shepherd going after the sheep. The woman sweeping and looking everywhere to find this inanimate object. Uh, the uh, coin wasn't sick. Uh, the coin didn't decide it was going to jump down off of her wrist and run over in the corner and hide from her. But the woman finds this coin, and when she finds it, she rejoices, and the ratio goes from 1 to 100 to 1 to 10. And Jesus says, and looked at the same words again, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice, there's that word again, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. It was not where it should be. She rejoiced when she found it. What about the coin? You don't scold the coin as for being lost. It's lost through someone else's carelessness. I guess a coin could shine, but you would have to shine it. You don't go through the house and look at a teapot and say, why aren't you shining? Uh, you have to shine it yourself. And so here, the coin is lost. The woman finds it. And when she has found it, she's happy. She's got it back where it should be. And he says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence. Now he goes, joy in the presence of the angels of God. That's a tremendous thing. Would you like to make joy in the presence of the angels of God? That's a pretty big description. That's bigger than the White House. That's bigger than the General Assembly. Joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he comes to his key story, which you'll have to study at home, but I hope you get it. A certain man had two sons. Never forget that. And the younger of them said to his father, Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a distant country and squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in want. He began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he fain would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to his senses, Every time you read that in your Bible, underline that. When he came to his senses, out there, having wanted his freedom and demanded it from his father, and having spent it extravagantly, when he came to his senses, he said, he thought about home again. He had wanted freedom from home Freedom from God, and there's a great movement to get free. We want 
the fruits of Christian faith without the Lordship of Christ, and you can't have it. It would be like my wanting to live without breathing oxygen. I could say I'm going to hold my breath and have my freedom from oxygen. And I'd have my freedom from oxygen and be dead. We can't live without God. We will perish. And here, this boy thinks of his home, and he thinks of his father. And I, I love this very, very much. He came to his senses, he thought about his father, and he thought even the people who work there are happy. They have bread enough and to spare, and here I am, perishing with hunger. And then he thinks, I will arise and go to my father. That's a great thing. I love that old hymn which we used to sing, I will arise and go to Jesus. I will arise and go to my father. And then he makes this beautiful speech up. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no more worthy to be called your son. And here he makes an interesting statement. Make me as one of your hired men. He has a religious formula for getting back into his father's good graces. Very much like Will's excellent sermon last week on the rich young ruler. But the young man wanted to do something. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This boy wants to go back home and be a hired servant in his father's house. But his father does not want him as a hired servant. He wants him back. And he got up and he came to his father and he must have been rehearsing the speech all the way. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. That meant his father was looking for him. It's interesting, the father saw the boy before the boy saw the father. That's always the way it is with God. If you have one impulse, to want to come back to the Lord or want to give yourself to him, he sees you when you're yet a great way off. His father saw him and felt compassion. It's a deep, visceral feeling. And ran. And that's tremendous. You've heard me point out often that this is the only time in all of the Bible where God is ever pictured as being in a hurry he ran and embraced him and kissed him. An extravagant display of emotion. He didn't tell him, go in the house and get washed and cleaned up and then I'll see you in my office. I'll see you in my study then. We'll try to work out something. But the father's heart is bursting with joy. And the tears stream down his face and he runs to that boy and he grabs him. And he interrupts him. He interrupts his speech. The boy starts to make his speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts at this point. He doesn't let him complete his speech. Quickly, says the father, Go and get my robe, the best one. The emphasis is on that. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the calf 
and kill it and let us be merry. This is my son who was dead. He's come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they begin to be merry. Do you see the, that Jesus embellishes this with joy? He wants us to feel excitement and joy over someone coming back to God. The father is not saying, think of all the money that guy wasted. Think of how much money. I know people that they would think about that boy when he was going back home. I wonder if he thought, man, I hope I don't meet my older brother first. If he comes out there, it's going to be sad. But the father saw him a great way off, and the father ran to him. And then the older brother, he loves him too, and that's the part that we always leave off on the story which should never be left off. The older son was out in the field, and when he approached, he heard the party, and he must have thought, well, something's gone wrong because the old man's been so sad, and there wouldn't be anything like this happening. And that he summons his, the servants to come, and he begins to ask them what had happened. And they said, your brother has come back. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now that should have brought joy, but instead of bringing joy, he became angry. He became angry, and he was not willing to go in. And the father had to come out to him. The father ran to meet the son. And here... The father has to go out to this elder brother because of his attitude. Do you see that? It, it, it shows it. Uh, and he not only has to go out, it says he began entreating him. And then he starts his speech. He's got a speech too. He starts a speech to the father and says, Look, for so many years I've been serving you. I have never neglected a commandment of yours. And yet you never gave me even a little goat that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, but this son of yours, who has devoured your wealth with harlots. Now we're not told that in the story, so the guy must have had some other information. With harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. Boy, what a hot-tempered speech. His anger spoils everything, and the church is packed with people like that. Smug, self-satisfied people uh, who come to church and say, why should I rejoice over one sinner? It's because your heart is not close to God that you don't feel that way. If your heart was like your father's heart, you would be so happy over that boy that came back that you would have your brother I remember when Mr. Johnson was president, I was at the White House one time, and Harry McPherson, who was one of the, he was the chief speechwriter, and Harry and I uh, had a cup of coffee together, and we were talking, and, and uh, he said, you know, he went to an Episcopal church, and he said, yesterday after the service, we had a discussion group that met, and the lesson was on the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, you know, I couldn't help but be mad at that younger brother and feel sympathy for that older brother who had stayed there and worked all that time. And he said, how do you explain that? And I said, well, I don't explain it. Jesus explained it. Jesus explained it by telling you 
that when you have a heart close to the heart of your father, you rejoice over that boy that comes back. That father I talked to last night on the telephone wants his son, even in prison for a long period of time, uh, to come into a Christian fellowship and to grow in grace and to make whatever is best for him. Your life is wrapped up in your children. The greatest contribution that any of us can make is to help them to truly walk with the Lord. Jim Voss, uh, Will's father, after his conversion and after the long work which he did in New York City with the Youth Development Incorporated, has gone to California where he now has a service which has an 800 number that allows, it's called Home Run. Isn't that good? It's where anyone can call on the 800 number and make contact with an agency, a Christian agency, that seeks to unite missing children with their uh, parents again. And two years ago, on that hotline in San Diego, they received a call from San Jose, California. And the caller was the father of a runaway. He wanted assistance in locating his teenage daughter. She had left home. And subsequent to this call the, from the father, the hotline intermediary for, uh, had made contact. The daughter had called in and made contact with them, and the hotline became the connecting point to get the two of them together again. This truck driver was so frantic that he had posted pictures of his daughter uh, in all of the places where he had gone uh, with, his inter with his long interstate trucking company. He went every place putting up pictures of her, wanting people to call that number. He could not rest. He could not find any peace until his daughter was found. And the daughter, when she became lonely and called the 800 number in the Christian service that Mr. Voss leads, was able to pull the two of them together. That brought joy. Joy to these two united again. And we have so much of this in America today. And it's such a picture for us to think about in closing. That the father here speaks to both his boys. The one that was lost far away and the one that was lost in the house. And the tenderest speech in this parable is the speech that the father makes uh, to this uh, elder brother. Son, all that I have is yours. You're always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right for us to make merry, to have a party, because your brother has come back. And our family is united. That's the family reunion. And when we are united in that way, there is joy. Joy in the presence of the angels of heaven. Uh, we won't sing our last hymn this morning because of time, but let's stand and be dismissed with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, how glad we are that we may use that word Father and that you have given us such a picture from your word 
such a story as Jesus has told. We pray that you will bless each one of us here by enabling us to realize the profound relationship which we have with you, that over all that we have thought about in this brief look at this great story is the shadow of the cross. We thank you that that father absorbed not only the rebellion of the runaway boy and took him back, but he also absorbed the anger and the harsh attitude of the elder brother and that he did this taking it upon himself that his family might be united. We pray that we might realize that in the cross of Jesus there is payment for all of our sins, the sins of people who seem to be respectable and the sins of the people who are far away. And we ask that you will turn the hearts of children to their parents and the hearts of parents to their child, that you will help us to love one another and be like you mean us to be, a family. We ask for your grace and pray for your power to keep us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and guide be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.